Welcome to Resilience Unraveled, featuring scientists, practitioners, experts and everyday people with knowledge, tips, experience and great stories to share to help you get a grip of your life. We'll give you insights into a range of subjects, including reducing your stress, improving your emotional intelligence, health and well-being and controlling your negative thoughts. By doing this, you'll be able to improve your resilience, confidence, control and perform better every day to live a more productive and purposeful life. For a free resilience ebook, listen through to the end for details. Here's your host, Dr. Russell Thackeray. So today I'm talking to Mark Tyrrell. Mark Tyrrell's got a fantastic site, which I'm sure he'll um, tell you all about, um, a fascinating blog, some really useful tools and techniques. And I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. So, hi, Mark. And hello, Russell. Now, again, a lovely English accent there, which makes a change for us, because often we have people from across the pond. So tell me where you are today. I'm in um, not-so-sunny Brighton. Um, We we were just talking before the call, you know, uh, I have an office in Oban as well in Scotland, so I got to Scotland a lot. Um, So I I straddle um, the Scottish uh, world and, and the English world. Uh, but yes, right now I'm in, I'm in Brighton. So you're well placed. You're well placed just in case the Scots strike out for independence. Yes, I've got a foot in both camps. Eh? That, that, that's right. I'm hedging my bets, Russell. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> it's called strategy. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mark, how would you describe yourself to someone? Oh, um, I would describe myself as a psychology trainer, um, a psychotherapist. Um, I specialise in hypnotherapy as well and the treatment of trauma. I originally uh, worked as a psychiatric nurse many years ago um, on the secure psychiatric wards. Um, and that's really where I began my fascination with helping people effectively. Um, because I can remember even now the sort of sadness I used to feel sometimes where you'd it's a very strange thing, but sometimes one incident or, or, or one type of incident really kind of um, sets your course in life. And, and I remember uh, the New Sussex Hospital in, in Hove, um, there, w- there would be a barbecue every couple of weeks. And what really, I just remember sitting there and, and, and the patients, um, some of them very, very badly damaged um, psychologically, of course, um, trying to live a normal life, seeing them trying to live a normal life somehow was full of pathos to me. And and, uh, you think, you know, these people just need, we all need normality and we all need uh, togetherness. And it was as if they were desperately trying to have this community, sense of community or sense of belonging or, or, you know, sense of meaning. And it just wasn't happening. (laughs) And, you know, uh, I think that that sort of impassioned me that's a word, to um, really start trying to help people effectively um, because I wasn't really seeing that happening in, in that context. Yeah, and so you've stressed that word effectively more than once now. So, yeah, because I'm, there's lots of people who help quite ineffectively, don't they? So, so what was the difference for you? Um, I, I, I stopped working in the hospitals and went, went into sort of housing um, then I trained uh, with British Hypnosis Research back in 1993 and started seeing clients pretty soon after that. And I was sort of amazed that some of the clients weren't too dissimilar to some of the patients who'd been um, 
long-term patients in the psychiatric establishment. And I found myself sometimes helping people who weren't supposed to be able to be helped <laughs> so, you know, without drugs or yes. electric uh, shock treatment. So people who were severely depressed sometimes or, or addicted or even in physical pain. And that kind of opened my eyes to a different way of helping people, I suppose. And, and, and it's interesting because, I mean, let's talk a little bit about the hypnosis thing because um, so, hmm, how can I put this? There are many, many fans and many de and a number of detractors. So yeah. should, should, should we unpack that a little bit? I mean, what is hypnotherapy? What is hypnosis? Okay, well, <clears throat> the way I see hypnosis and hypnotherapy, well, firstly, I see hypnosis as something that happens anyway. Right. So, you know, it was curious, talking about my experiences in, in the psychiatric hospital again, you know, sometimes people will be so depressed to be... Um, catatonically depressed or, you know, they're cataleptic and, and they just wouldn't move. Yeah. And they, they were clearly absorbed inwardly and, you know, to the detriment of external focus. You know, all their focus was um, inward yeah. and they were probably accessing their imagination, uh, you know, the, the, or, or memories, you know. So later on, I, I looked back on this and I thought, well, that, that was pure hypnosis. Mm. You know, they were trapped in a, in a sort of hypnotic trance in which... They were disassociated from their resources and from possibilities and from even external reality. And um, so I see hypnosis as something that occurs quite naturally. Now, we all spend about two hours a day in REM sleep, yeah. in, in dream sleep, unless we're depressed, in which case we can spend a lot longer in, in REM sleep, which is interesting. But we think, well, REM, you know, what happens in REM? We're, we're accessing the imagination in the form of a dream. We're focused inward, we, we, we're disassociated from external reality, you forget the bedroom that you're in because you're totally focused on your imagination. And you have catalepsy, you know, um, because obviously nature doesn't want you acting out your dream physically, you're dreaming of being uh, <laughs> Superman and the window's open on a summer's night, you don't want to actually be getting out and flying, uh, trying to fly out of the window. Yeah. So we have catalepsy when we're dreaming. Uh, and. Um, and all these things you see in, in, in therapeutic hypnosis, you see um, people remming, the, the, the eyeballs flicking from side to side beneath the eyelids, you see catalepsy quite often, and people will often access their imagination quite profoundly during hypnotic trance. So really we're using something natural when we use hypnosis, but also we're using what is often used for, for, for bad in a good way. We're helping people take the reins of, of, of this central feature of what it is to be human, uh, you know, to help them meet their emotional needs in life. Uh, another aspect of natural hypnosis going wrong, if you like, is post-traumatic stress disorder, which I've, I've worked uh, uh, with a lot of people um, suffering from trauma and also phobias. And, and you see, um, it's a purely hypnotic condition, uh, PTSD. And there was even some research done that showed that people who are more likely to have long-term post-traumatic stress disorder were more hypnotizable, which makes perfect sense to me because you think, well, somebody has an extremely traumatic experience and it's quite trance-inducing. Everything can seem quite dreamlike or go in slow motion during the, the event. And then they become programmed hypnotically. So anything that vaguely reminds them of the event in future sort of sends them post-hypnotically back into the, into the initial trauma. And... Um, to me, that, that's not a cognitive condition, that's a hypnotic condition. You know, no, 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 you won't find that in a psychiatry textbook. 
Um, but but that's that's the way it appears to me. So so helping people uh, access the hypnotic mind in ways which can actually help them um, seems to be so full of potential and so able to help people dramatically and quickly, as opposed to trying to get them to um, you know uh, just go through the pain again, for example, or um, just focus on the cognitive aspect of their reality. Because people will often know that something's irrational. Or they'll even know what they're thinking, but the emotions seem to swamp that out. So, you know, we need to connect to the part of the mind that actually produces the problem, I think, some of us. So, so you talk about hypnosis accessing memory and imagination. So yeah. is it the purpose of a hypnotherapist or someone doing a guided hypnosis to be able to help them reframe the memory or utilise the imagination a different way? Or how, how does that work? Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting question because memory seems to be constructive you know we, we it's a sort of a myth that we just have a sort of little recording device in our brain that you know accurately depicts uh, memory of course memory changes yeah. and um, there's been lots of research on this as well you know e even the way that you talk about a memory can change the nature of the the way the memory is accessed or, or the nature of the memory itself so um but certainly you, you mentioned reframing memories and, and that's what we want to do you know really it's the past that produces current problems psychologically, um, quite often for people. You know, it's emotional conditioning, but not always. I mean, you know, people suffer if they're not meeting their needs in the present as well. But uh, we might need to reframe the past either by getting the person to feel more relaxed about a memory or to have a wider perspective on it. And you know, they may be quite biased in the way that they access the memory or, or describe the memory to themselves. You know, so they might be full of self-blame, for example, or, um, you know, in which case we might be able to reframe the past event with them, I wouldn't say for them, but with them, mm. so that they can see other elements, uh, causal elements, it wasn't just their fault, for example, you know, and, and that can be very important, because we know that depressed people, or people with low self-esteem, tend to, uh, you know, exclusively blame themselves for things when they go wrong. Yes. So it's the so it's the false attribution that allows you to reframe and then open someone's minds up to the idea of is it about seeing the memory in a different way or is it about reprogramming um, it almost? Well, I, 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 it does seem to be Russell that, that when we um, access a memory from a third person position, then we have less emotion attached to it. Yeah. So so one thing I, I might do if someone has. Um, if someone if someone's traumatized, if it's if it's a full, you know, the, 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 that from Helmand Province in, in Afghanistan, and the, you know, the, they they were they witnessed death and destruction, then I'd use something called the rewind technique, um, which is a very uh, structured um, way of of uh, helping people comfortably overcome PTSD quickly. But it, it, if it's simply very, you know a rather painful memory or sub uh, trauma, uh, a sub threshold uh, traumatic memory then I, I might just have the person review the memory from a third-person position whilst relaxed and notice things I hadn't noticed about that. And, and even intervene in the, in the, you know, as themselves currently go back with their resources and actually uh, you know, sort of intervene in that time. You know, for, for example, I, I run a, a resource called um, Uncommon Practitioners Therapy Videos, or UPTV, in which... Um, uh, therapists can, can observe therapy actually be, being done, video sessions. And there's one in, in which uh, a woman called Valerie uh, relates to being bullied at school. And um, she, what had happened was that um, 
she'd been in a library presenting a book review um, to her classmates, and they'd all started throwing books at her and telling her she was boring. And, and the teacher didn't really intervene. And uh, it was, a, you know, it, it was unpleasant to think of. It wasn't fully, it wasn't sort of PTSD, but it, it was unpleasant. So I, I, um, I focused on her current resources and everything she'd learned in the 40 years since that memory, uh, or 50 years since that memory. And then um, got her to sort of review that memory and then go back into that time as her current self and tell the children to behave and to comfort her former self and to tell the teacher to sort of control the class. And so so the, it's not that you're changing the, the, the memory, but you're, you're um, because memory is accessed through the imagination anyway. Mm. So we, you know, so then she could find that she could very quickly feel better about that time. It no longer troubles her and it doesn't produce the pattern match um, of feeling disempowered currently in her 60s. So, um, you know, quite, so what will happen if, if there's a, if a learning experience like that? Uh, but what you're learning isn't very nice. Um, then, you know, to actually decondition that, we, we, can ch we can reframe the memory, but not just as a, in a thinking sense, but in an emotional sense. You know, it, a real reframe for me is, is when things feel different for the person, not just when they can think differently about it. You know, and the two will often go hand in hand. Mm. But often we need to have the person feel differently about it before they're able to think differently about it. That's interesting. Now, I have to put my cards on the table. I've actually used hypnotherapy myself, and I'm a big fan of it. Um, but a lot of people have concerns around this idea of these sort of um, ill-placed memories. So it's often, it's been used sometimes in child abuse cases and such like. And there's yeah. this idea somehow that the therapist can put a memory in place that wasn't really there. What, what, what's your... I mean, as, as, a, as someone who's experienced that, I find that hard to understand or to, to get my head around, but what, what's your view on that as a practitioner as well? Yes, ab absolutely. Um, we need to tread very, very carefully with memories. Um, for, for example, once I had a, a man um, come to see me who had bashful bladder syndrome, and he, couldn't, he found it difficult to urinate in... in um, you know, public bathrooms. Mm. And um, he knew why this had happened. You know, it, it, it occurred when I think he'd been doing his A-level exams or, you know, when he, uh, uh, when he was 18 and he'd been standing next to his father and his father put a great deal of pressure on him to do well in his exams, you know. Mm. And so, so you didn't have to be sort of uh, Freud to sort of work this out. Uh, and um, he said from that point on, he just found it difficult. But he'd, got, he'd gone to see a therapist before coming to see me and um, this therapist suggested that he... This came from sexual abuse. And mm. um, the therapist also suggests that this man had loved his grandfather. And this therapist somehow worked the idea into his mind that his grandfather may have sexually abused him. Because mm. this sort of thing must come from sexual abuse in the therapist's mind. And um, they did some guided imagery. And um, the, the therapist, um, you know, he, he started to sort of have these images of his grandfather and, and, and doing horrible things and, and this kind of thing in a particular room in, in, in his grandfather's house. And it really troubled him. He thought, well, I've never had these memories before. So that, that's a sign. If someone doesn't have pre-existing memories, you, we can't use hypnosis to uncover memories that, that, that weren't there before. You know, a person might access a memory they hadn't accessed in a long time. My gosh, you know, I hadn't thought about that time in a long, long time. Mm. But then I started remembering that really good time, and you know it's great to remember that again. But it, but you know it's recovered memories, very very. Uh, there's a lot of evidence to show that so-called recovered memories can be constructed memories, and that's a massive danger. And in the 90s, uh, that, that caused all kinds of legal 
problems, people being falsely accused, all kinds of stuff. But anyway, this man went back to the house where his grandfather lived and um, actually got permission to walk around the house. And the room, that, that the, the, the imagery that, that was unpleasant to him, uh, which was constructed through the therapy sessions, had occurred to him, was, didn't exist. That room wasn't even there. It had never been there. So he suddenly realized that he invented this room that had never been there in the house through the therapy. And he's, he really started doubting that his grandfather had ever done anything to him that had anything to do with the vascular bladder. And he was pretty disgusted with the therapist and, and left that therapy. And, and um, so, so that, that is a real danger. And we, you know, we have to ensure that the memory is one that's pre-existing to therapy. Mm. No. And, and if someone says to me, I want to recover a memory or, you know, uh, because that, that's, that's a huge assumption, I think, that um, in order to get better, someone has to just recover a memory that they didn't have before because they've been repressing it. Mm. And, um, it, it, it's curious, isn't it? I mean, I mean in the early days of psychotherapy or psychiatry, I think practitioners were desperate for psychology to be seen as a proper science. <laughs> so use metaphors from real science, and back in the in the 19th century, sort of hydraulics was all the rage. So you know, uh, psychologists would talk about emotions hydraulically, about letting off steam, about repression, about uh, you know uh, suppression, and. Uh, all, of course, people forget this is metaphor. Mm. You know, it doesn't necessarily work very much like that. No, most people remember the terrible stuff much better than they remember the good stuff in their life. Mm. It's not that they're repressing it necessarily. Um, so, um, you know, we have to be careful of those assumptions and we have to not use hypnosis as a way to recover memories or construct them because that's a really dangerous path. Mm. So is there a way if, you're, if you think that, well, and we'll talk in a minute about who hypnosis is particularly effective for, but is there a way of checking out a hypnotherapist so you can feel comfortable about knowing that you'll be in good hands? Um, I, I think we need, yes, I, I think asking commonsensical questions like, you know, um, do, do you work uh, in a solution-focused way? Mm. You know, because uh, the, the idea that you can just... Uh, look for causes and, 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 and as I was saying, you know, discover or, or rediscover memories or uh, uncover memories, you know, that, that's the phrase. Uh, if, the if the hypnotherapist is working along those lines, then they might not do you that much good and they could do you a great deal of harm. So are they solution focused? Are they up to date with their understanding of how depression works? And, um, do, they, do they use hypnosis alongside other approaches, maybe like CBT? Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy because um, hypnosis is a tool, it's not a therapy. Yes. It, 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 you know, it, it's another therapeutic model. It, it is a highly effective and powerful tool which can be used uh, alongside other approaches. So what's the general approach to the person? Um, you know, that, that, that would be a line of questioning, I think. And I think I think there's a sort of common sense thing. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of codes of practice we have to sign up to and such like. But yeah. there is something about you know when you first meet someone, especially in hypnosis, you're going to be you know potentially in a more vulnerable vulnerable position because you're going to have your eyes closed potentially, lying back or whatever it might be. Yeah. You just need to know that you feel comfortable with that person. There's a sort of social there's a social comfort that comes comes from just being with someone who you don't with whom you don't feel threatened you know they, they should have that sort of you know easy to rub along with sort of mentality i guess 
<laughs> Absolutely, there should be there should be a kind of a, a chemistry in a sense, or, yeah. or, or um, you know, a feeling of you know, well, obviously an innate feeling of trustworthiness. You know, as, as you say, you know that you can feel that the person is on your side. They're not play, playing power games. You know, um, I, I think it's really important to sort of respect our, our clients. As it, you know, it's very dangerous to feel that you are the all-knowing expert, and this person has come to you, and you're going to put them right, and so forth. Um, we really need to understand the power of rapport and connecting with whoever walks through our door mm. on an equal footing. You know, it, it, it's I never want to feel as if I'm the all-knowing, all sort of powerful <laughs> kind of therapist. Um, you know, that knows it all because of course you don't. You know, every therapeutic interaction is, is an explorative experience. That you, you know, you, you know some stuff. Certainly, as a therapist, you should do, and you can be really effective. But you know, really, the client is the expert on themselves, and if we can connect to the, the expertise they have that they may not have been using or even been aware of, um, then we can do great things. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really useful for people because. Sometimes you're just not quite sure what you can ask, but knowing to knowing to listen out for these sorts of phrases is quite useful. Now, going into resilience for a minute, I mean, obviously, I, I work a lot with people who've got suppressed memories or, you know, maybe have had tricky relationships with parents or been bullied, as you say, yeah. or have been depressed or something. So um, is is there a particular set of things that hypnosis works better or less well for, with? Um, I, I, th I think um, hypnosis will be probably less effective for people who are uh, more incredibly left-brained, as we might call it. Okay. Um, you know, or, or um, you know, sort of maybe someone on, on this spectrum of context blindness or, or Asperger's or autism uh, towards the left hemispheric sort of dominance. So, yeah. so um, you know, someone who takes things very, very literally. Um, you know, less less, uh, you know, sort of visually creative, for example. But then, then, you know, so often therapy can all, can be much more linear and you know cognitive and, and and so forth. So that sort of person may be may be less effective for um, so certainly things that make it harder for people to be resilient, like um, not being able to access the good times in their life. Or not being able to use the imagination about the future in a, in a more constructive way, um, then we can use hypnosis and also um, certainly helping people uh, who've been traumatized. I, I, had, I had a client who, who'd had an incredibly, uh, I've spoken about it quite a lot, uh, incredibly horrific childhood. Um, her, her father had been schizophrenic and, and, and had murdered their mother in front of her when she, she'd been young. Wow. Very, uh, uh, when, when she'd been 12 and her, her and her brother had witnessed that and then she'd, be, she'd gone to live with her grandparents and, and both of them were physically abusive but, her, but what was causing her flashbacks now in her 40s in her early 40s was uh, and had done since the, the trauma was that her uncle had come to live with the family and he had systematically raped her from the ages of 12 to 18 and at 18 she ran away from home Nice. And um, she she was, um, but she'd never been hospitalised. She'd never had any therapy. Uh, she'd never even been to a doctor for antidepressants or anything. She'd never had any treatment, which which is amazing. And, and she had she had a job, 
she had a relationship which wasn't particularly, particularly satisfactory, but she was functioning. Yeah. Um, and, and, but what she was waking, waking every hour on the hour at night because her uncle used to wake her up at night and, and take her into his garage and rape her. She was finding that, um, that, that you know, so she's very hyper aroused, uh, you know, as far as cortisol sort of cursing through her systems, coursing mm-hmm. through her systems and cursing. Um, and um, she was in the fight or flight response a lot of the time. But she was functioning. She was very brave, and I was really impressed by her, her sort of quiet dignity. And, um, uh, you know, she was holding it together, and she didn't feel particularly well done by either, which was amazing. She didn't feel like a victim. Um, but she wondered if there was anything I could do about the, the flashbacks that she was getting whenever she um, smelled uh, engine oil uh, because, because of, of where the rapes had taken place. And, and so I used a rewind on, on the worst memories, and we, we, I worked with her, you know, over and over and over again to, to really uh, neutralize those memories so they no longer produce the pattern match. That, uh, uh, and that, that was a use of hypnotic sort of uh, technique, which, which made a profound difference for her. And then she started being able, she was freed up to sleep the whole night. Um, she, she'd been going, she'd been running for an hour, maybe two hours every day to try and you know, to sort of do something with all this anxiety she was feeling. So she, she's incredibly, um, um, you know, amazingly, uh, well, resilient. It is resilience, yeah. It's, it's, coping, it's coping with stuff when it's, yeah. when it's at its height, isn't it? It's not just the bouncing back thing. It's really been able to yeah. sort of weather the storm. And I think... Um, and she that, found her own way. That, that, yes. That's really, really, really impressive. So, so um, and she hadn't given up hope either. You know, when you think about... I think the heart of, of resilience is, is hope. Yes. Uh, uh, and, um, and not, not hope that someone else is going to come magically and rescue you. No. <laughs> sort of utopian sort of hope, but, but um, constructive hope, you know, that, that I can make a difference and that things can get, can get better. Then there was some research done on, on depression. And um, we know that um, rumination is toxic to depression. And the more time someone... Uh, spends time in their head misusing their imagination or this sort of tra- trance state of worry or, or catastrophization and rumination, the more likely they are to depress. Yeah. But what they also found, or, or some other research found, that even when people ruminate uh, excessively, um, if they have hope when they're ruminating, if they ruminate with hope, then it's, it's mitigated. They're, they're, they're no more likely to get depressed. So um, I really do feel that Therapist's job is, is, is to supply hope as, as well as other sort of uh, benefits. And you can see, uh, it's interesting as you chat, I can see sort of different cogs linking together. So we talk a lot about purpose and we talk a lot about self-esteem. And, um, and you can see hope being part of that, sort of as making a nice try at that. Because actually they all, they're all sort of interdependent, aren't they? It's hard to have hope without... Positive self-esteem, really, in a, in yeah. a way. And yeah. I suppose it's which one do you start with, isn't it? It's and, and the answer is well, it doesn't really matter, doesn't it? As long as you start with one of them. Yeah, I, I think I think you know, they, they all sort of connect to one another, or they all impact one another. Uh, but you know, certainly the way you feel about this. I mean, we think about learned helplessness. You know, Seligman's model of yeah. learned helplessness. It, it, it's um, it, it's really the sort of knocking out of hope in a sense. Yes. And um, even with animals, you know, you can even. even I mean, I mean, I, I don't, I don't suppose that animals, you know, like rats and, and so forth, have huge imaginative lives, but they can still sort of develop some kind of expectation 
even if it's purely sort of an instinctive expectation. Uh, you know, so if they're held down in water, then next time they're in water, they, they stop struggling and they stop trying to survive uh, much quicker than the rats not held down in water. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and um, it's just a feeling that I can't do this, you know, and not to say the rat has low self-esteem, but um, mind you, you probably would if you were a rat. But, but they steady now. We'll have people writing in. Practiced <laughs> here, um, but verminist. Um, but but yes, it, it, it's the, it, if you've been trained to feel that whatever you do doesn't make any difference, yeah. then you don't have a sense of hope because um, you're totally at the whim of uh, unpredictable fortune, you know, and, and that's a very dangerous state to be in. You know, what can I do to make a difference in a situation? I can do things. Yes. is an incredibly powerful um, background kind of um, personal psychology to have. Yeah. Now, now you, on your website, have a, a range of um, hypnosis resources that the general public can, can use. So would you yeah. be able to point, point us in that direction, Mark, please? Yes, well, we have, um, we started this uh, site hypnosisdownloads.com, which is quite a descriptive name, really, Uh, back in 2003, and we got over a thousand different topics on there um, from um, people, you know, help with people suffering from cancer, which we, we, those are free downloads, or they can can donate to um, a cancer charity if they want to, or, you know, they can have them free, or they can pay for them if they choose to. Um, to, to paid downloads on, on things like um, interview confidence, uh, uh, you know, weaning, weaning off drugs, um, alcohol dependence, all, all kinds of stuff. And, and uh, we've had over half a million people use these downloads. Wow. And I think, I think that's right. Um, and we get great feedback. You know, people say they're not a replacement for therapy. Although some people have said they'd be more useful than therapy, but it you know it depends on the therapy. Um, but basically, you can listen. You know, it might be twenty minutes, half an hour. Um, we've we've developed an app as well, so people can use them on their phones. And it's just an opportunity for people to sort of uh, you know deal with it, deal with the issue in a very discreet kind of a way. You know, so uh, as as I say, it's not that it's going to replace therapy necessarily um, because it can't be individualized to that extent but the thing is all, all, all these problems if you like do share so many commonalities you know people get depressed in the same kinds of ways they have the same kinds of thinking styles when they're depressed and so forth so people have phobias in the same types of ways you know even though the phobia focus may be uh, completely different uh, from one person to the next so we you know we've taken the commonalities of these types of experience, and we try to apply the best hypnotherapeutic techniques that we can to each one, mm-hmm. and um, we do get good feedback, which is really heartening. And and so this whole process of reframing, you've sort of pulled together into a new um, book as well. I understand. Yes, um, I wrote it, but I, I wrote this book a while ago, but we only sort of published it um, a couple of years ago. Uh, it's called New Ways of Seeing: The Art of Therapeutic Reframing. And uh, really, the book is just, it's, it's got some uh, introductions to each chapter on, it might be addiction or depression or uh, anger management, and it's got a little bit of uh, stuff about anger and depression and so forth. And then it's got examples, case histories of, of uh, uh, using reframes um, in therapy 
for people who are depressed or angry or addicted or, or uh, low self-esteem or whatever it might be. And, and um, that's also, um, you can get that independently by the little Amazon, um, or you can, um, or, or it comes as part of the conversational reframing course, which is an online course for therapists. Um, to because, because really I feel that we can be a bit clunky with reframes if we're not careful. You know, I, I think the best type of reframe won't hit someone over the head. <laughs> it, it, it will be metaphorical or it will be part of a conversation which is very naturalistic. And also it will be an experience for the person. It's not just a question of, oh, you know, uh, why don't you look at it like this or why don't you think about it like this? But it could actually, it, it needs to actually um, be more emotionally compelling than the old way of seeing. Mm. You know, and, and um, so the book sort of, and the course described uh, ways to actually present a reframe in a compelling enough way for it to uh, kind of be impossible to go away, to go back to the old way of, of limited seeing. Yeah. And um, one of the things you'll notice if you go on Mark's site is that um, the conversation we've had today has scratched about 0.4% of Mark's resources, <laughs> knowledge probably, uh, less than that even. And um, But I noticed that you've got um, a new blog series out about the dark side of emotional needs. So that looks fascinating. I'm going to work my way through that. So Mark, to give well, me a quite a dramatic, dramatic title, isn't it? I know. I'm, I've always been interested in, in um, uh, you know, when psychology kind of goes wrong and or when it becomes hijacked yeah. by something else you know so so for example um you know it's almost a cliche to say that if someone's addicted they, they're in a relationship with what what it is that they're addicted to you know so um if you're in a relationship with an alcoholic there's three of you in the relationship you know sort of thing this is quite a familiar idea um and i've basically i've written nine Article. This is a clear thinking series, which we yes. the weekly blog, and uh, there's been a sort of intermittent series within that series about the dark sides of the human needs. So I've taken, for example, the need for attention, and what happens when we um, don't meet it in in healthy ways. Then we start to perhaps cannibalise situations in which really they shouldn't be about us getting attention, <laughs> but we're so start we're starving for attention or dying of thirst, you know. So we'll we'll meet that need anywhere we can. And I use the example of a, a learning situation if someone's um, starving for attention because they they don't know that what they need is attention. They might think that they they've gone into a situation to learn something, but what they're do now doing is that they're, they're um, cannibalizing the situation, maybe they're talking more than the teacher is, maybe they're interrupting the other students, and you know, we've, we've all experienced this, or seen this happen, and um, of course you can do that for all the needs as well, for status you know, people can meet their needs for status legitimately for status mm -hmm. recognition, in ways which are, can be pretty awful, uh, as we know um, so really that's what the series is about, so it, it seeks to explain uh, things like Jonestown or, or cult formation or even, you know, even sort of political tyrannies, um, but also personal, in, interpersonal tyrannies as well. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I've, um, I, I'm busy. <laughs> it's a very interesting writing style. It's very, very, um, what's the word? Um, it really draws you in. So, um, I, and I, I think it's, it's fascinating because whilst you talk about working a lot with uh, other professionals, that in and training those people up this is written in a way that anyone can read so it's you know it's really it, it's transmits a lot of knowledge in a very short amount of time so it's, it's good yeah yeah that, that's that's my i actually did a writing because when i first started writing on for online articles so they were they would try and they were appallingly boring you know mm. and and um 
although not to me, you know. And and, and then um, I, I did a writing course <laughs> with a writing coach in Canada who was fantastic. And, and she more or less said, you know, how about, how about this as a novel idea? How about making your articles interesting? You know, she, she didn't say it like that, but yeah. <laughs> more or less. And so, so, so she helped me a, a great deal. And, and um, you know, I find that I, I, can, I hopefully most of the time can make my articles interesting. And I've got a, a, another um, website called uncommonhelpme.com. Uh, .com? Yes. And, and it's uh, basically um, it's about 100 articles on there for people who... You know, not for professionals, practitioners, but for uh, people who perhaps have problems. And the, and the, the most popular article on there is insecurity in relationships, <laughs> which is massively popular. popular yeah, as a, strange. As a, yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, I do fair bit of writing. Mark, well, I'm, 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 <laughs> I've done sometimes what I often do with some of my um, fascinating guests. I've suddenly, I look at the recording um uh, dial and I suddenly see we've been going for 36 minutes and uh, I really thank you so much for the time you've given us today and as you can probably tell we've only scratched the surface of what Mark has to offer so Mark thanks so much for your time today well thank you for having me on Russell no really problem. enjoyed you take care and you bye bye we hope you found today's podcast useful if you did why not subscribe and listen to our other podcasts we would love it if you could leave us a review to access our resilience coaching, contact us at info at qedod.com. And finally, if you'd like to download our free resilience ebook, go to qedod.com slash free ebook. Thanks for listening.